All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to the book of Ruth. Uh, The book of Ruth is in the Old Testament, and it's a little hard to find. It's somewhere between Judges and 1 Samuel. So here's the best thing to do. Just go to the table of contents, find the page number, and turn there. There's no shame in doing that. However you get there, get to the book of Ruth. Uh, Man, let me just say that I'm excited about preaching the book of Ruth uh, because in, in one sense, it's kind of an easy job because this tends to be, at least among Christian ladies, one of the, their most favorite books in all the Bible. Uh, but then there's another part of me that's, that's feeling a little bit of pressure and stress because I was telling a few of you ladies that I was preaching this book and you had this like faraway look in your eye that was basically the subtext of that was, don't you screw this book up, Burkhart. Don't you run this. This is like my lady. This is my book. If you screw it up, I'm coming after you. So uh, I feel that pressure today. I'm so excited. But man, this is like, this is a book that if you grew up in church, you've probably heard some of this story, maybe not all of it. And here's how I want to start us out. In Genesis 1 and 2, it tells us that God created men and women equal in value, worth, and in dignity. But when God created men and women equal, he did not create them the same. He created them different. Now, here's why I say that. That's culturally unpopular because when we say uh, God created us to have equality in our genders between men and women, culturally what's being said there is that we are the same. And I want to say the beauty is not in our sameness. The beauty is that because we are image bearers, we have value, worth, and dignity together as image bearers, but God did not create us the same. He created us very different and for a beautiful purpose. And just to kind of explain it another way, like I've got a left hand and I've got a right hand and both of my hands are equal and both of my hands are valuable, but my hands are not the same. In fact, if you take one of my friends, Charlie Hall, who's the, the worship pastor here, if, if he said, Charlie, come up and play guitar for us, he's an excellent guitar player. But if we asked Charlie to move the guitar to the other side where he's strumming with his left hand and playing chords with the right, he, he wouldn't be able to play the guitar at all right? Because the value is not in being the same. The value actually comes from being image bearers, and yet we are different from each other with men and with women. And one of the things that Josh said that I found really helpful is he just walked through the essence of what this difference is. Because this difference between men and women, it surpasses biology, and it surpasses role and responsibility. So if you missed when Josh kicked this series off, you can go to our website and find that sermon where he walked through. This is what it is in its very essence to be a woman. And one of the things that he said is the thing that I want to camp out on today, and that's this idea that God created you ladies to be life givers. Now, before you think that that's solely bringing physical life into the world by having babies, let me just say that's a part of it, but it's so much bigger and so much more than that. The way that you bring life is not primarily or even ultimately in having children, but in a spiritual and relational way, you ladies, at the core of who you are, you've been wired by God to be life givers. You bring life to the world around you. And, and, and this still feels, I don't know if you feel this, but this feels a little ambiguous and it feels a little nebulous to try to describe what it looks like on the ground for women to live as life givers, to bring life to every sphere of their world. And so what I want to do is I want to show you the story, the story of Ruth, because I can't think of any woman in the entire Bible that encapsulates more clearly, embodies more clearly what it looks like and what it means to be a life giver than this story of Ruth. In fact, if you are a follower of Jesus today, 
If you would say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, Ruth has not just brought life to her world 3,000 years ago, but Ruth has had a profound impact on your life and your relationship with Jesus, and you may not even realize it, but she has had a huge role to play in your story as well. Now, typically what happens with this book, the book of Ruth, is that we don't catch this aspect of the story of Ruth being a life giver because a lot of times when pastors are preaching this book, they tend to not focus on Ruth as much. She's kind of like a a background character to the story. And the other person that they focus on a lot is actually the male character named Boaz. We meet this guy in chapter two. Boaz is this godly and wealthy man. Some of your ladies are like, that's all I want is just a godly and a wealthy and an attractive man. I'm not asking for much. That's a short list, right? So Boaz is kind of turned into this romantic story, and that's often how it's preached. And Boaz is seen as the hero. And listen, Boaz is awesome, all right? Boaz is great. He, he basically takes Ruth, and he treats her with such respect and dignity. And Ruth, as we're going to find out, was uh, from Moab. She was a Moabite woman. And the Moabites were like the most hated people at this, in this cultural moment with the people of Israel. The people of Israel thought they were dirty and gross and sinful, and they were actually descended from uh, the people of Sodom, from Sodom and Gomorrah, which, by the way, they don't, they don't have a very good reputation in the Bible. And so these are the descendants of Sodom. They were hated. In fact, they weren't even allowed in the temple. And what we see in the story is Boaz just with such grace and mercy, treating Ruth with respect and dignity. And then he eventually, in chapter 4, he marries Ruth because we find out that Boaz is what's called the kinsman redeemer. Now, real quickly, what is a kinsman redeemer? What's that all about? Well, essentially, this is in a day and age when you didn't have life insurance policies, you didn't have assisted living centers, you didn't have adoption agencies, and so if crisis were to hit a family and you either died or needed someone to step in and cover debt, uh, the closest male family relative would do that for you. So if I were to die, then my, my brothers who were single would step in and they would take care of my wife, they would marry my wife, and they would give their life to raising my children and making sure that my family was provided for. That was the obligation of a kinsman redeemer. What's so crazy about the story is Boaz isn't the closest kinsman redeemer, and yet what we see him do is in in chapter 4, he marries Ruth, and he gets Naomi, the mother-in-law, as well, which, you know, just imagine, like, getting, it's like a twofer. Like, you get Ruth, and you get her mother-in-law both to come live with you, and you get all of their debt, right, because they were in debt and, and needed to be redeemed out of that, and Boaz, he didn't have to but he did. He stepped in and he took on their debt and he basically took them, took Ruth to be his wife and brought life to this family, right? So Boaz is an awesome character in the story. And so I get why people focus on him so much. He points us to Jesus in so many ways, but here's what's so crazy. And this is obvious, but this is not called the book of Boaz. Have you noticed? Uh, This is not the book of Boaz. What we're about to read, what we're about to dig into together is called the book of Ruth, and it's called that for a reason. Ruth is not a background character of the story. The whole point of the story is telling her story, right? So this is the book of Ruth, and what we see happening in the story is not just one redeemer with Boaz who redeems Ruth, but actually there's another redeemer in the story, and that other redeemer is Ruth herself, 
Ruth functions as a redeemer for Naomi, her mother-in-law that had experienced unbelievable tragedy and crisis. And Ruth takes the ownership of loving and serving Naomi in such a way that brings life, not just to Naomi, not just to her world, but to our world today. So here's what I want to do. I want to just jump in and give you some background so that you can understand really what's happening in this story and see how Ruth embodies what it means for women to step into that feminine essence of being a life giver. So if you're with me, Ruth chapter 1, go to verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. So those of you ladies that are pregnant with a little boy, just consider one of those options, all right? They won't get picked on at the playground at all. Um, There were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now let me just pause. What's happening so far? Well, the story opens up with this, this guy named Elimelech and his two sons, and, and they live in Bethlehem, which the nickname of Bethlehem, or what Bethlehem means, is the house of bread, right? Sounds like the house that I would love to go visit. And here in Bethlehem, what happens is there's a huge famine that hits the land. This massive famine overtakes the land as a judgment that God is bringing on his people that were living disconnected lives from him, that were trading their lives that God had given them to live lives just like the pagan nations. And so what's happening in this cultural moment is that God is judging this people of Israel for turning their back on him and wanting to look like all these other pagan nations. So Elimelech, rather than repenting of his sin and the sins of his people and actually returning back to God, what Elimelech does is he takes matters into his own hands and he he thinks, okay, there's this famine and I hear that there's food in Moab, so I'm going to take my family to Moab and I'm going to just try to avoid what, what God is doing over here, this judgment that he's pouring out on our people here, and I'm going to go solve and fix this problem on my own. And so he drags his wife and his two sons with him to escape poverty and to escape eventual death, eventual death. But look at verse three. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. So he goes to escape poverty and death, and yet in his faith, faithlessness towards Jesus, he actually finds poverty and death. Verse 4, uh, these, her two sons, uh, Naomi's two sons, these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, we're just going to call her Oprah, and the name of the other was Ruth. Side note, th- th- no one cares about this, but actually Oprah's real name is Orpah. And no one could get it right, so they kept calling her uh, Oprah, and so she changed her name. True story. You can share that at a party and not make any friends, but there you go. <laughs> so, so Oprah, and the, and the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years, verse 5, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So let's just, what's happening in this story? Well, so far, he escapes poverty and death, so he thinks, only to end up dying. And his sons grow up, and they marry Moabite women, which was actually forbidden at the time, not because God is against interracial marriages by any means, but because these were women that did not worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible. They worshiped a God called Chemosh that demanded child sacrifices. And this was this brutally harsh group of people that hated God, wanted nothing to do with him, 
him. And these two sons, when their dad dies, they grow up and they marry women that want nothing to do with the God of the Bible, and then they die. Naomi is left without a husband and without her two sons, which in that culture is a massive, huge deal. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. Look at verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters, Naomi arose with her daughters, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord has visited his people and given them food. So the house of bread is now filled with bread again. Verse 7, so she set out from her place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Verse 10, and they said to her, No, we will not return, or we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So what you need to understand culturally for this story to make sense is that For a woman in this culture, this is 3,000 years ago in a very traditional patriarchal culture, for a woman to have value and worth and significance and meaning and to ensure that she had a life that was actually going to be a thriving, safe, secure life, she had to find a husband and she had to have children. Specifically, she had to have sons. Now, why is that? Well, culturally, let me just give you a few reasons. Sons were an economic asset at that time. I mean, just think, this is a lot of labor in the fields. And so as you have children, that's an economic asset, specifically sons, because they're going to be out working in the fields for you. Read free labor. In fact, I remember complaining about mowing my, my, my dad's lawn at one point, And he was like, hey, dude, that's why I had you. All right, uh, I had 10 kids so that you would do the work, all right? So this is what's happening here. In that culture, having sons was actually an economic asset. It meant free labor, and they could do the work for you around the house. That was important. Number two, sons would actually provide for parents in their old age. No life insurance policies in this day and time. So the sons would grow up, and they would be the ones that are providing for the, the parents when the parents would get of age. They would be the ones that are working the fields and taking care of things around the house and ensuring that you actually had a life worth living in your old age. And then number three, in ancient society, in this patriarchal culture, families would pass on wealth and property and legacy all through the sons. And so if you were a a husband and you had a wife and daughters, when you died, then your property and your legacy would die with you. And no no one else would get it. It, it, No one else in that family would get it. It would go to somebody else. So property and wealth and, and inheritance was all passed down through the sons. And so here's what I'm trying to get you to see. If you are a grown woman in Ruth's culture and you didn't have a husband, then culturally you had no significance. You had no meaning. 
You had no real identity whatsoever. In fact, you were in many ways just seen as an outcast right away because there's nothing that you could do in this culture to, in any real sense of the word, contribute to society. So to have value and dignity and respect, you needed a husband and you needed sons in particular. Uh, Carolyn James, in her excellent book, The Gospel of Ruth, she says this, in a male-centered culture that ascribed value to women based on their relationships to men, these husbandless, sonless women hold no interest to anyone. In many minds, especially in the minds of the three women themselves, the story is over, nothing is left to tell. So this story ends where it really should, this story begins really where it should end for these women. They, they have, Naomi has her husband pass away, and then her two sons pass away, and she's left with these Moabite daughters-in-law. And so when she's traveling back home to go to her homeland, she turns to these women and she says, you've got to go. You can't follow me. To follow me is like a death nail on the casket of your life. You need to stay in your land where you have a possibility of actually getting married and you have a possibility of having sons and and having life and and everything that you need to have a thriving world. It's here in Moab, not with me. Don't come with me. That's what she's saying. Now, what happens to Orpah and to Ruth? Well, look at verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye, and Ruth clings on to her. Verse 15, and and Orpah said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. In In other words, don't go with me. What are you doing? It's craziness. It's, It's not logical to stay with me. But Ruth said, verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May anything but death, may anything but death parts me from you. If anything but death rather parts me from you. This is what I want the Lord to do. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Okay, let's, let's just unpack briefly what's happening in this story. Or, uh, Naomi's on her way back home, and Orpah and Ruth have a decision to make. They're at a crossroads. And to go back to Moab, to stay in Moab, is the logical decision. It makes sense from a human perspective. This is what you should do. If you're a woman, and you want to have, have significance, and if you want to have dignity, and if you want to have any sort of a life at all that's safe, then you need to go back to your homeland and find a husband and have some children. But what Ruth does instead is, unlike Orpah, Ruth decides to go with Naomi. Why? Why does she choose to go? This doesn't make any sense. This is, this is literally her kissing goodbye any hope of a better life. I mean, have you ever met an immigrant that left another country to come to the U.S. and they were saying, I came here because I'm searching for a worse life? No, they always come looking for a better life. And here, Ruth knows, I'm not going to find a better life if I go with Naomi. What was happening here? Well, listen, this is not just Ruth's devotion to Naomi. This is not just Ruth's faithfulness and loyalty to Naomi. There's something theological happening here. There's something happening inside of Ruth's soul that you and I can't really see if we read too quickly. So look at verse 15. I want to show you what this is. Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. 
return after your sister-in-law. I'm just going to call that like counter-evangelism, right? She's like, hey, have you tried Muhammad, right? Have you tried worshiping Allah? Have you tried, there's some other options out there. You should, don't go with me. Just go back and worship your own gods. And so Ruth is at a crossroads and here she realizes that to go back is to worship these other gods, but to go with Naomi is to embrace the God of the Bible. Carolyn James, she says it this way. She says, when Naomi guides Ruth's gaze to the disappearing form of her sister-in-law and describes Orpah's actions and theological terms, a going back to her people and to her gods, something takes hold of Ruth that is bigger than both of them. It is as though in an instant the floodlights go, go on in the darkened stadium of Ruth's soul, bringing the issues into razor-sharp razor focus. Despite Naomi's urgings, at its core, this choice is not about geography. It's not about family loyalty or the future. This decision is about God. And so what happens next, and I just want to explain it this way, what happens next because of knowing what we know in the New Testament is what you might call Ruth's conversion experience. She goes from being this pagan who worshiped other gods, wanted nothing to do with the God of the Bible, to in an instant, all of a sudden, she, she begins to, to, to reject this way of life that was promising her hope and security and, and life. She rejects this, and instead she decides to embrace, not just Naomi, but to embrace Naomi's God. What's happening here is God is giving life to Ruth's soul, and she goes from being dead in her sin to being made alive in God. Where all of a sudden, this way of life that she once held on to, she's no longer holding on to it anymore. Carolyn James again, she says, to the casual observer, Ruth was simply embracing Naomi. But Ruth was also embracing Naomi's God. Scholars point out that this is the spot where Ruth the Moabitess chose to become an Israelite, a true follower of Yahweh. A conversion of faith expressed in a vow of radical self-sacrifice to Naomi. Ruth did not see a vision of blazing light like the one on the road to Damascus that turned Saul of Tarsus around, or a burning bush like the one that, Moses, that caught Moses' attention, but she was as thoroughly reoriented as these men were, and she would impact her world as profoundly as they did theirs. Ruth goes from death to life. Now, let me just say this. If you're a lady in the room, the first thing I want you to see about what it means to be a life giver, being a life giver starts with finding your life in God. Being a life giver, before you can give anything away, it starts with finding your life, your identity, your safety, your comfort, your security in God. Let let me just explain it to you this way. The question that this story is already posing, not just to all the ladies in the room or in Edmund or Shawnee, but but the, the, the question that this is being posed to all of us in this room, male or female, is will you be like Orpah or will you be like Ruth? Orpah knew that she could create a life for herself and she could do this on her own. If she would just stay in her homeland and find a husband and find children, she could have meaning and significance. She could have a thriving life. And so Orpah chooses not to find her life in God. She chooses to to create her own life and to build her own life in her own efforts and in her own abilities. Ruth, on the other hand, she gives all of that away. She, She says, I don't need a husband to find significance and identity and meaning. I don't need children in my life to find identity, significance, and meaning. I'm gonna find my life in God. 
Now, some of you ladies in the room, you're thinking, man, I must be like Ruth. I got to be like Ruth because I don't need a man in my life. I would never say that. I would never say that I need a husband to find significance or identity. I'm doing just fine on my own. Thank you very much. Well, let's just remember that in a traditional culture, you, you had culture giving you this message, identity, significance, meaning, do you want that? Here's where you find it. It's in a husband and it's in having children. But in a culture that's not traditional like ours, and in a more progressive culture, the message is different, but it's nonetheless, here, find your identity, your value, your significance, and something other than God. Here's what modern progressive culture tells the ladies in the church to find or achieve or acquire if you want significance, value, and a life that's worth living. It says be successful in the business world. You got to be successful, be attractive and sexually alluring to people around you. Achieve a measure of power and significance. Have an Instagram-worthy home where all the pictures that you take, your friends just begin to envy you because of the, the beauty of the space that you live and inhabit. Right? Live an adventurous life that everybody looks at and says, That's, if only I could have a life like that, that person has significance and meaning. Be, be invited to the right dinner parties and be seen in the right social context with the right people of influence. Own the right possessions. Wear the right clothing. Be someone that other women in your life envy. That's where you're going to find significance. That's where you're going to find value. That's where you're going to find identity. Climb the corporate ladder. It's in all these other things. And so the question is the same in a traditional culture or in a progressive culture. Where will you find your life? Will it be in what culture offers you and says, here is significance. And if you have this, then you can feel good about your life. And if you don't, then you can look down on everybody else for not having it. Or will it be the story of Ruth where she actually rejects what culture says and she says, I don't need those things for identity, significance, and value. I'm going to find my ultimate life and value in God and in God alone. You see, if you're a woman in this room, God has wired you to be a life giver in your very essence. That's one of the the beautiful things that you bring to your world and our world. But you can't actually give life away that you don't have yet. You can't give any sort of beautiful life away if you haven't yet found that life in God. And so that's that's the first thing I want you to see is being a life giver starts with finding your life in God. Here's the second and last thing I want you to see. Being a life giver is giving your life away. It's not just finding your life in God, but once you are captured by grace, once the the floodlights of your dark heart go go on and you see the need and you you cling to Jesus rather than what culture says that you need for for significance and meaning, you're clinging now to Jesus. You found life in him. What does it mean to live as a life giver? Well, it's giving your life away. I just want to show you the way that Ruth does this because I can't think of a woman in scripture that gives her life away in a more significant fashion than this woman. It's bold, it's courageous, it doesn't make any sense. Look at verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. 
When Ruth says this to Naomi, it's this beautiful poetic language that's being used. It's so beautiful, in fact, that if you've ever gone to a wedding, chances are you've heard this recited uh, oftentimes in the vows that we see happening in, in weddings. And so she's vowing herself to Naomi. But, but what she says here, it's not just conjecture, and it's not just trying to be poetic and beautiful. She's literally saying, hey, Naomi, if I go with you, I'd rather die with you than stay back here. In fact, going with you is ensuring that I'm giving my life away. I'm a foreigner. I'm a widow. I have to wear certain clothes in this culture that let everybody know that I'm a widow. I've been married for 10 years, and I still don't have any kids, so maybe I can't conceive any children. I'm an outcast. I'm a Moabite. No one's going to want anything to do with me, but I'm going to give my life away so that you might be okay, so that I can serve you and just give you everything that I have. This is what Ruth does. Ruth literally gives herself away for Naomi. So just like Boaz is the redeemer for Ruth, Ruth is the redeemer for Naomi. And here's what I mean. Naomi is so sad and so overwhelmed with depression that she can't even work, right? She's pretty old, but she's not too old to, to, to work. She's old enough to actually work and help out with stuff, but she's so overwhelmed with depression. If you've ever struggled with that, you know how it is, where there are days where you can't even get out of bed. You have no energy to do any sort of activity at all. This woman had just lost her husband and her sons. She had nothing left, She was devastated. Let me just read you this. Look at verse 19. And this is a window into Naomi's soul. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And they said to them, or, and and the women said, is this Naomi? She looked physically different from the last time that they'd seen her. Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. That means pleasant, right? Right? Call me Mara, which means bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Right? So listen, she's not even grateful that Ruth is there with her. She's just like, I I, I left full, and I'm coming back empty. And I'm depressed and God has put his hand against me and I've got nothing left. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter old hag because that's what I am, right? I I want you to change the way you think of me and she doesn't even work. So how does Ruth give her life away for Naomi? Well, in chapter two, we see Ruth get up early, early before the sun is up. She goes out to the fields, which was a servant's job. She goes out to the fields, and this is not a safe place for women to be. It's very possible that women could be raped or or molested. This is not a safe place for her. And yet Ruth works all day from sunup to sundown, not just getting food for herself, but getting food for Naomi so that Naomi, who is sad and overwhelmed back at the house, can have food to survive. Ruth does this for upwards of three to five months. She does this day in and day out, waking up and taking care of Naomi and collecting food, not just for her, but for Naomi. She's giving her life away, right? This is not the the life that Ruth as a young girl envisioned. I'm going to grow up and my husband's going to die and I'm going to spend my life serving this, this bitter old woman. And yet she does. In chapter three, we see Ruth Uh, go to Boaz, and this is so crazy, Ruth asks Boaz to take her to be her husband. 
So she actually proposes to Boaz. And it wasn't because there was this like unbelievable romantic connection and sparks were flying like crazy. Naomi was the one that had the idea. And after months and months, she says, hey, you know, Boaz, he's a, he's a kinsman redeemer. You should go and propose to him and maybe he could marry you and get us out of debt and ensure that we could actually have a life of comfort and safety again. And Ruth does. She goes to, to Boaz and she asks Boaz to marry her. And Boaz just joyfully takes her to be his wife. I mean, Ruth is giving every part of her life for Naomi. She's holding nothing back. And then in chapter 4, finally, we see Ruth bringing life, not just to Naomi, but to the world, because Ruth has a baby son. And that does a couple of things. It keeps Naomi's heritage intact. And so all the wealth and property that Boaz had could then be passed through Naomi. Naomi's line. But here's what's so crazy. That little boy that Ruth had, his name was Obed, and he fathered a man named Jesse, and he fathered a man eventually named King David, who eventually through his line, when you get to Matthew chapter 1, you realize that Jesus comes from the line of King David. So Ruth, not just, she doesn't just bring life to Naomi, she also brings life to the whole world by being one of the women, one of the four women that's mentioned in Matthew 1 as being in the line of Jesus and his heritage. This is unbelievable. Every part of her is giving herself away for Naomi. Now, why does that matter to the ladies in the room? Well, let me just say it like this. I found this quote by Carolyn James incredibly helpful because oftentimes you and I are not living the life that we thought we would be living. Have you ever met someone? They're like, things are just, everything's amazing. It's exactly how I planned it. I'm so, I'm so impressed with how my life is. No, m- most people are looking at their life and they're saying, I didn't plan it to look like this. And I didn't plan to be 35 and divorced. And I didn't plan to, to, to lose a child. And I didn't plan to, to, to be in this rough marriage. Or I didn't plan to, to be single. Or I didn't plan to, you fill in the blank, like our lives oftentimes don't look the way that we want them or thought that they would look. And yet Carolyn James says this. She says, Ruth's story is good for us to contemplate when we crawl out of bed in the morning. Sometimes our days are filled with activities we love. Sometimes the battles before us aren't what we expected to be doing with our lives, much less what we expected to be doing as women. The backbreaking work that Ruth did all day was hardly the feminine occupation that she envisioned for herself, but she was doing God's work. Perspiration, dirty and broken fingernails, rough surroundings and all. And she did it with all of her might and her resources and her wit. God gave us Ruth to remind us that courage and boldness and godly leadership are important feminine attributes when it comes to living for God. When we swim upstream against the culture, use our voice to speak the truth, advocate stubbornly for others, and sweat and toil and strategize to advance God's kingdom on earth, we are doing woman's work. So here's what I want to tell you ladies. If you're in the room, God's wired you to be a life giver, and that starts with you finding your life in God. But what it means is you give your life away to the people that are in your life. And what could be more like Jesus? 
Let me just give you a couple things. Like, if you're married, this means giving your life away to your husband or giving your life away to your children or giving your life away to your friends and your roommates or to your coworkers and even the ones that, that don't really deserve it, right? It's giving your life to the single mom in the church that has no help from anybody else. It's, it's giving life to the ones that our city has written off and said, these people are too far gone for the grace of God to reach. It's giving life to the thousands of children that are in foster care waiting for someone to come along and adopt. It's, it's every person in your life, your sphere of influence, it's being one that gives yourself away to them. You've been captured by the grace of God, and now you give yourself away. And can I just say, this is so countercultural. Culture says, you do you. You live for you. You're at the top. What matters is your happiness and your joy and your pleasure and your autonomy. Don't connect yourself to anybody. Don't sacrifice yourself for anybody. Don't give your life away. And I just want to say that maybe the reason why we're experiencing cultural suffocation right now is because we're suppressing one of the key things that God has put inside of you to actually express your feminine essence. I think about my friend Alex Steele. She's a member of our church. She's a young single woman that has just graduated college recently. She blows my mind. She serves my wife and me and our kids like crazy. Our kids wake up and they're not like, hey, Papa, like, where's Alex, right? They, they, they love her. She comes over to our house. She does things. We're learning from her. She's discipling my wife and I. She's teaching us what it looks like to, to love Jesus more fully. I mean, she just blows my mind with, with her courage and her boldness in the way that no other person I've seen is like this in the way that she's giving herself away. That's God's invitation to you. You don't have to be married. You don't have to have kids to do this. You can be single, old, young. It doesn't matter. This is God's invitation of you. Now, let me just, before we close this out, let me take a second and, and apply this because although you don't have to be married or have children, I think for 80% of the women in our culture, having physical children is actually going to be a major part of your life and your purpose. And we live inside of a culture that doesn't view life-giving by having children in the same way that God does. In fact, it's the, the, one of the worst things that you could do. Many people view children as bad for the planet, expensive, a nuisance, annoying, a waste of time and money. In fact, in the West, this, this approach to children is so popular now that the fertility rate is actually below the replacement rate for the first time in history. We're not even replacing ourselves, right? And so the fertility rate is below the replacement rate. Careers are viewed as better than having children. And really, in our culture, just about anything is viewed as better than having children. So if you're a mommy and you're in the room, look at me because I want to I encourage you. What you do has such a deep and profound impact. And although your life probably doesn't look like what you thought it would look like, you are giving yourself away to that three-year-old and it's changing the world. It matters. It has value and it has significance. Rachel Yankovic, she says it as a woman in a way I can't say it as a man. She says, children rank way below college, below world travel for sure, below the ability to go out at night at your leisure, below honing your body at the gym, below any job that you may have or hope to get. In fact, children rate below your desire to sit around and pick your toes if that's what you want to do. 
below everything. Children are the last thing that you should ever spend your time doing. Christian mothers carry their children in hostile territory. When you're in public with them, you are standing with and defending the objects of cultural dislike. You are publicly testifying that you value what God values and that you refuse to value what the world values. You stand with the defenseless and in front of the needy. You represent everything that our culture hates because you represent laying down your life for another. And laying down your life for another represents the gospel. Our culture is simply afraid of death. Laying down your life in any way is terrifying, but a Christian should have a different paradigm. We should run to the cross, to death. So lay down your hopes, lay down your future. Lay down your petty annoyances. Lay down your desire to be recognized. Lay down your fussiness at your children. Lay down your perfectly clean house. Lay down your grievances about the life that you're living. Lay down the imaginary life that you could have had by yourself. Let it go. Death to yourself is not the end of the story. We of all people ought to know what follows death. The Christian life is resurrection life. That life that cannot be contained by death. The kind of life that is only possible when you have been to the cross and back. Nothing could be more Christ-like than your job as a mom, if that's where you find yourself today. Now let me just pause and say this, that there are a group of women in, in the room or in Shawnee, Edmond, South, that you are hearing this and your heart breaks because you so badly want to have kids, but for some reason, infertility is a part of your story, and you can't. And you, if you get invited to another baby shower, you're just going to freak out on someone, right? And if you have another woman post on Facebook that they're, I mean, it's just so hard, and, and what you're experiencing is real, and it is painful, or maybe, maybe it's not infertility. Maybe, maybe you've lost a child, and so you think, man, my, my, my ability to be a life giver is gone. It's not there anymore. I can't do it. How am I supposed to do what God has called me to do? Can I tell you something? That God has such a ridiculously high view of women who never can or will have kids. It's crazy. He honors them. He makes much of them. And being a mom is not merely being a physical mom, but according to Isaiah 54, being a mom is profoundly and deeply spiritual. Listen to this. This is Isaiah 54, 1. Isaiah applies the promise of fruitfulness and abundance and life-giving to women who never have children. He says this, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, You who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. There is a way that you are bringing spiritual life into the world that is unbelievably significant and fulfilling the feminine essence that God has given you. It profoundly matters. In fact, most of the women in the Bible that you and I would point to and say, these women were life givers. These women brought such beauty into their world. Most of, if not all of them, shouldn't or couldn't have any children. Elizabeth, too old. Mary, too young and a virgin. And that's a little bit of a, you know, impasse with having kids. Mary Magdalene, single, from what we can tell. Lydia, single or bereaved or divorced, from what we can tell. Philip's four daughters and Acts, all single, all amazing. Phoebe, probably single, and on and on and on I could go, but can I just tell you something? This whole story, one of the main characters of this whole story is a widowed woman who is childless. 
And this whole story is God delighting in bringing such beauty and life to the world through her. She was in the line of Jesus, the Messiah. So life-giving is entailing motherhood, but motherhood is physical and spiritual. So let me just close this out like this. We've talked about finding your life in God. We've talked about giving your life away. And we've said that really Boaz was Ruth's redeemer, but Ruth was Naomi's redeemer. And this is a story about two redeemers. That's not actually true. This is a story about three redeemers. Boaz, Ruth, and then the ultimate redeemer of the story is Jesus Christ. He is the redeemer. Jesus is the better Boaz. Boaz comes to a woman that culture had said, don't touch this girl. She's off limits. She's filthy. She's unclean. And Boaz comes and he embraces her, even though no one else would. He lavishes his love on her. He takes her to be his wife. And Boaz takes all of her debt upon himself and he covers her debt. Jesus does this for you and I at the cross. He never should have loved us. He never should have had mercy on us. He never should have embraced us the way he has. But God left heaven and came to this earth and he went to a cross and on the cross he took the debt that we owed and he covered it for us and when we were empty he provided his righteousness as a gift. Jesus is the better Ruth. Ruth leaves her home and clings to Naomi and gives her life away for Ruth. Just think about the ways that Jesus does this. He left his country in heaven and came to this earth. And, and he, didn't, he didn't just demand that we would serve him. But in fact, he says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to lay my life down as a ransom for many. Jesus takes the fullness that he has and he gives his life to people that have nothing. Jesus is the better Ruth. This story, it's not just a story about Ruth and the amazing significance of her giving her life away. This is a story about the way that Jesus wants to give his life away to you and to me, even though we're like Naomi, we don't deserve it. We're like Ruth, we're the outcast that shouldn't be loved, and yet he does anyway. So if you're in the room and you think, man, this church thing's not for me and I'm too far gone and I'm too broken and sinful, this thing is for you. Jesus stands today offering you his life. All you need is emptiness and brokenness, and death, and Jesus will come in, and he will take you to be his own. He will pay your debts. He will forgive you. This is the story of Ruth. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, this isn't just an application for women. Find your life in God and give your life away. That every one of us Christians, we've been captured by the grace of God. We found our life in God now. We went from death to life. Now, by his grace and by his strength, let's leave this place and go into our cities and let's give our lives away for his mission and for the furthering of his kingdom because this this life is not about you. It is not about me. This life is about him and his glory and his worship and his adoration and people that are far from him coming to know him. Give your life away because that's what Jesus does for us.